0: This
1: week, the Comics Guys, explain Jack Kirby.
0: Explain that. Welcome, everyone. We will be specifically looking at the many, 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 one more time, many lawsuits that Jack Kirby has been involved with over the years.
1: So, uh, take it away, Darren. Who is Jack Kirby? This is Jack Kirby versus the world. Yes. Jack Kirby is obviously, uh, if you know anything about me, my absolute all time favorite comic book creator, and uh, certainly uh, one of the absolute giants of uh, comic book history, and generally a guy who's pretty much beloved by everybody um you know fans and other professionals alike and yet somehow despite that uh has gotten over and over again into a number of battles uh throughout history. So this is going to be kind of like a discussion of his career. We're not going to go into any sort of detail about any of the things that he did create in this. I guarantee you eventually we're going to get around to episodes that talk about all of the different creations of Jack Kirby. This one is more kind of a look at like the you know difficulties he's had in his career and the various ways uh he has had uh, uh, you know mistreatment and disputes and that sort of thing with his employers. Uh, so Jack Kirby was born in 1917. Uh, his real name was Jacob Kurtzberg and uh, he lived in New York City and uh, he got his first job in comics in 1937 after he uh, left high school uh, with the Eisner and Iger shop. Will Eisner and Bob Iger ran a uh, shop of artists uh, in New York City, who basically were for hire producers of comic book titles, of comic book uh, uh, characters and that sort of thing, for other publishers. They weren't an actual publisher themselves. And they you, they were somebody that you could buy strips from for your comic book. And so uh, Jack Kirby did a lot of work there under a bunch of different names. Um, He tried out several kind of like pen names uh, before kind of settling on Jack Kirby while he was working there. And he did a lot of fill in work because he was a kid and he was learning how to do this at a time, you know, the comic book industry was just getting started. So he was, you know, kind of there in the very earliest days, figuring out how to draw, how to, uh, you know, create comic books. And he did a lot of inking over other people's stuff. He did a lot of like editing work and, you know doing white-outs of messed-up pencil lines and that kind of thing, and just generally doing cleanup on other people's stuff. Uh, He then took a job uh, in 1938 with a company called Fox Feature, who were actual publishers. Uh, And Vincent Fox was kind of one of the early, uh, you know, uh, shall we say, mob-related, you know, kind of uh, publishers at the time that were were looking at this. And he took a, a gig with Joe Simon, uh, Joe Simon was a writer and artist uh, who was a couple of years older than Jack, um, and Joe thought that saw that the money in comics books was not in like being the creator; it was being the publisher. It was being a, he wanted to set up a house like Eisner and Iger had, right, to be a packager and to sell art and characters and stories and that sort of thing to other publishers. He thought that was the way to actually make money. And he saw that Jack was very talented, uh, even though he was a kid and very fast, and kind of like partnered up with him. Joe pretty much gave up doing art himself only a few years into his career. Um, Because he just didn't feel he was as good as some of the people that he was working with. And he was a much better plotter and writer and scripter. So he kind of like stuck to doing that. Uh, And he and Kirby formed, you know, like a a partnership to do a bunch of characters together. Simon and Kirby's first series together that they did was for a company called uh, Novelty Press. And the packager was Funnies, Inc., Uh, that they went to work for. And Joe was trying to learn the business of being a packager from Funnies, Inc. And for Novelty Press, bought a series from them called Blue Bolt. And that was the first superhero that Joe and uh, Jack did together. And that lasted a few months, Uh, The character wound up uh, going into the hands of other writers and artists. Uh, Novelty kept actually putting them out. But Simon and Kirby only actually worked on the strip for a few months. They then took a job as they were, you know, kind of freelancers bouncing around looking for different uh, titles. And they took a job working directly for Martin Goodman at Timely. And Timely, of course, is the company that will eventually turn into Marvel after several uh, you know, more iterations. And I promise we will, of course, do a full history of Marvel at some point. Once again, that's not really the topic here. Uh, but while they're working for Martin Goodman, who was uh, similar to Vincent Fox and a couple of other people in the, in the business at the time, was, shall we say, not the most reliable employer, uh, they cut a deal for a character that they had created who was called Captain America. And Captain America, of course, was a soldier, uh, who uh, was not that good a soldier uh, to start out with. He was, uh, he was skinny and uncoordinated, et cetera, but he was very brave and he signed up to be the uh, subject of these experiments that basically turned him into the strongest and fastest guy around, into a brilliant you know, uh, tactician and a great soldier uh, and took a shield and a costume based on the American flag and went out and punched a lot of Nazis. And from the very beginning, Martin Goodman could tell This was going to be a thing that sold, right? He saw how good Kirby's artwork was, how good Simon's, uh, you know, scripting was, and how intrinsically interesting the Captain America character was. So he did a deal up front with Simon and Kirby uh, to, you know, publish this character that they had been working on. And the deal that Simon and Kirby worked out for them said, okay, we want salaried positions uh, working at Timely. And Goodman agreed, and he said, "Okay, I will pay you each 80 bucks a week." Uh, now, keeping in mind that that's you know 1939, 1940 uh, dollars. So you kind of have to multiply that by about 12 to be uh, match today's dollars. right? So if you think about it, then they were each making, uh, you know, say, 1000 dollars a week, which you know, not bad for cartooning kind of thing for the time, especially for kids. Uh, Captain America, as part of this deal, was going to premiere in a solo title. He was not going to appear as a character in some other comic. He was not going to appear in Marvel Mystery Comics or any of the others. He was going to get a comic called Captain America Comics Number no. One from the beginning, and Goodman agreed to that. And then Simon and Kirby said, "Okay, and we want 15% of the profits on the character, 15% of the take of you know of what they sell." Uh, and Goodman agreed to that. That's the the contract existed for this. Uh, of course, Goodman was right. Captain America was a sellout smash hit in 1940. They couldn't keep it on the stands. They couldn't print enough of them. Um, and by the time the third issue of Captain America comes out, of the monthly titles for this, they were up in the rarefied air of titles that were selling over a million copies a month. And there were only a handful of these at the time in 1940, right? That's Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel level sales. And it was way bigger than anything else Timely had had at the time. Uh, Goodman and Simon almost immediately within the first few months were at, were upset with each other they didn't believe uh that the other was was treating themselves fairly right uh joe simon claimed they're not getting their 15 percent correctly and that goodman is lying about the sales figures right jack himself is not really involved much in this dispute because he has always considered joe is like his older friend right like joe jack is only 22 23 at this point and joe is considerably older and has been doing this longer so he kind of let joe handle the business side of his relationship with timely uh Mm -hmm. and simon you know kind of told him we're getting ripped off we're not getting our full 15 percent this is you know like the look how much money timely is making off this character we're supposed to be getting a bigger position uh during this time uh Simon was contacted by Jack Leibowitz, who was the one of the people running uh, national publications that would be DC Comics. Uh, and he saw how successful Captain America was, et cetera, for this, and knew that Martin Goodman was kind of notorious for not paying people what they were supposed to get for this. So Leibowitz kind of like secretly passes the note under the table kind of thing of, hey, you guys are great. I, I really like Captain America. It's a great strip. If you guys ever want to come over and work for me, you know, we can talk, right? Like, I'm sure I, I will take care of you much better than Goodman does, right? So Simon, uh, you know, kind of took that note, that, that interest from Leibovitz, uh, And, you know, that was one of the reasons he was fighting Goodman as hard as he was, because he was kind of saying, I've got an offer in my back pocket to go somewhere else for more money. Uh, and Simon, uh, Goodman says, after the fact, later says that uh, they weren't really in that big a dispute. His version of the story is that there were like these small things that Simon was upset about, but Simon was trumping up the dispute uh, in order to get Jack Leibowitz to pay more to have them come, right? He had found out, Goodman had found out, that Leibowitz was interested in stealing these two away from him and thought that the dispute was just kind of like, you know, being made into a much bigger thing than it should have been because Simon and Kirby were trying to get more money out of Leibowitz who told Goodman uh that Leibowitz had made this offer uh is a matter of considerable dispute and Jack Kirby himself would say later that he was pretty sure the person who told Goodman uh that Leibowitz had made them an offer, had expressed an interest in them, was this young office guy working at Timely uh at the time, uh, who you know was a sometimes writer, sometimes office boy, errand boy kind of thing for us, whose name was Stan Lee. And Kirby never trusted Stan Lee after that, though he never proved uh, that Stanley was in fact the one who had kind of tattled on them. Basically, he believed it until he died. That Stanley was the guy who had, in fact, actually like you know, kind of gummed up, gun, ginned up this uh, this argument between Simon and Goodman. Did Lee ever address it? Nope. Oh, interesting. Not one, no, neither in, in 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 neither direction. He never said yes. He never said no. As far oh. as I know, he never responded to Kirby talking about it. So, hmm. anyway. Uh, Leibowitz finally does make an offer uh, to uh, Simon and Kirby to come work for them uh, and uh, says, OK, we're not going to give you a royalty. We don't give royalties to anybody. That's just not how things work here for this. Um, but I will, in fact, triple the, your pay rate for this. Uh, I'll pay you 500 bucks a week uh, instead of the 160 that Timely is paying. For you, and you just come here, and you'll just get a paycheck of you know being on salary, and you'll just work on you know like a bunch of different things while you come here. Uh, Goodman finds out about this and fires them from Timely before they have a chance to quit. Right? This literally, the, the Simon and Kirby Captain America only lasts ten issues. Uh, 10 months, basically, that they were able to kind of like stick together, uh, you know, working on this character for Timely before other characters, other writers and artists took it over, right? Because this is work made for hire. Timely owned Captain America, they could put anyone they wanted to on it. And so Simon and Kirby leave Timely, uh, Kirby kind of like vowing to remember the name of that guy, Stan Lee. We'd never worked for, but you know, had not, had not worked with in any level. But you know, let that that kid, he's he's trouble. Uh, and they go, you know, across town and take a job at National. Uh, at National, they go to work for about 15 months. The two of them basically sit down, uh, you know, kind of like together. In that time, they take over Sandman. As a character, change him from being this kind of like mysterious figure in a suit coat and a gas mask into a much more colorful Mystery Man character. They give him the purple and yellow, you know, skin tight costume and everything, and, uh, you know, kind of really change the the look and take of the character. And they create a bunch of new characters. They create the Manhunter. uh, They create the Boy Commandos. They create the Newsboy Legion. None of these are Captain America size hits. But they're all solid titles. It's not a bad first year of, you know like generating new stuff. Uh, Simon continues to work from home because he's really still interested in becoming a packager. He's trying to set up that business. Kirby actually takes a job working in the office uh at the dc kind of like bullpen basically with a bunch of the other staff artists and so if you walked into the dc offices in 1942 and early 1943 there was just a row of desks a row of drawing tables basically and you would see jack kirby sitting next to jerry robinson sitting next to bob kane sitting next to mort meskin right like all of the main dc staff artists all in a row and then all of the editors kind of like down at the end of one One side of the room, basically, Uh, and then starting in 1943, the All American titles were upstairs from that. So you had like two floors of some of the most amazing collections of uh, of artists uh, ever put in one place. Uh, Of course, while all of this is happening, it's 42 and 43. Like World War World War II has started to happen, right? Kirby obviously was, you know, like relatively well known for having created this patriotic superhero, uh, and was well known for being, you know, kind of one of the first uh, artists, one of the first writers, uh, to to deal with like the Nazis as bad guys, right? Because I mean, Captain America from the very beginning is punching Hitler on the cover of their very first issue, a year and a half before. America's in the war with Germany, right? Uh, But he was in no particular rush to go off to war. He was willing to do it. uh, And a lot of his friends and associates, or whatever, you know, like after Pearl Harbor, went out and, uh, you know, enlisted, basically. Jack didn't want, was not up for enlisting. Uh, He was willing to wait until he got drafted and then he would just go, you know, do his duty. And he didn't get drafted until the summer of 43. Uh, So he's already, you know, 26 years old at this point. Uh, And he kept working on comics, you know, up until that point. In 43, uh, after he goes to basic, he joins the 11th Infantry uh, and uh, is part of Patton's Third Army. He lands in France in August of 44, like a few weeks after D-Day. Uh, and worked as a mapper and a scout. Basically, he would be sent out in front of his units uh, to like look at a you know get a get a look at a village or a town or whatever before his unit actually like traveled into it and draw maps of it. And since he was such a great artist, obviously his maps were amazing, and you know his uh, commanding officers loved all of his work. Uh, and so they you know put him to work doing this. It was actually a pretty dangerous job because obviously he was out with a very small unit and you know kind of like leading a team in. Uh, he goes across France in '44. he participates in the Siege of Metz uh, from September to November, uh, and then uh, starts in, in the beginnings of the Battle of the Bulge. In December of 1944, while he, he and his unit are camping in the woods, Jack gets frostbite and nearly lost his legs. His legs turned like bright purple uh, and wound up having to be uh, pulled out of France and sent back to London to recover in a hospital there. Uh, And so he spends several months uh, in a hospital in England and then gets sent back to the U.S., where he finishes out the war working in a motor pool in North Carolina at Camp Butner. He gets an honorable release as a private first class in July of 45 with a bronze star uh, and, you know, is ready to return back to work. Joe Simon, his partner uh, at this time, had, in fact, actually enlisted in the Coast Guard. Uh, and therefore never really saw any combat. Uh, And in fact, his job was to, he worked for the PR unit of the Coast Guard, and he was assigned to an office in Washington, D.C., writing PR statements and press releases and that sort of thing for the Coast Guard. And during that time, he gets married to a woman named Harriet Feldman, and Harriet Feldman was the secretary of Al Harvey. And Al Harvey was the guy who ran Harvey Publications, which you'll remember as Casper the Friendly Ghost and all of those characters, Richie Rich and all of that stuff. Uh, so he marries the guy who runs that company's secretary. And so when he and Kirby get out of the service, Simon gets them a job working at Harvey Publications, uh, thanks to you know his wife's connections there. And the two of them go to work for Harvey Publications while they are uh, building their own company that they uh that they intend to put together. And while they're at uh Harvey Publications, they do Boys Ranch, they do Stuntman, uh and they basically invent the entire concept of romance comics when they create Young Romance, which is kind of the first real romance comic. Uh all of which Kirby is putting his, you know, work into. He's, you know, superheroes at this point after the war are not really a big thing and Kirby doesn't really miss them. Right, He's doing all kind of other genres. He's doing Westerns. He's doing horror. He's doing a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and he's spending a lot of time doing romance. They start their own company called Mainline in 1953, continuing to work for Harvey. And in fact, actually, they rent out their office space from Harvey uh, and do titles for other publishers. Uh, they're doing war comics. They're doing police comics, more romance things. And in 1954, Over at Atlas, which is the company that Timely had turned into, uh, Stan Lee brings back Captain America and makes him, uh, you know, creates a whole new series with different writers and different artists and everything, making Captain America into a commie fighter instead of a Nazi fighter. And they're kind of ticked off at this, right? Like, its I mean, they, 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 he's got the rights. Atlas, you know, inherited the rights to Captain America. Uh, but they're like, we never got a call. You could have called us and we'd have, you know, probably been willing to work for you. But they kind of are unhappy that Lee has just gone straight to other people using a character that they were, you know, they created and they uh, never didn't make enough money off of. Um, so instead, they're kind of pissed. They create a character called the Fighting American. And the Fighting American is kind of a spoof of, uh, you know, patriotic superheroes. He is uh, he he is fighting commies, but the commies are all kind of ridiculous. And, uh, you know, within the first two or three issues, it's clear that Fighting American himself is kind of a joke, right? He's kind of a satire on the entire concept. Of being, a, you know, being a patriotic superhero, uh, because at the time this is when McCarthy is like being exposed in the press, right? Like this is the time when, uh, you know, like being that kind of like fervent anti-communist is for the first time in the fifties being called into question, right? The whole, you know, in the end, sir, have you no shame? Kind of, you know, like confrontations with McCarthy were happening at the time, and f- so Fighting American was kind of a uh, a commentary on all that stuff was happening. Uh, And so they did the Fighting American for the company called Crestwood, as they were also doing Young Romance and a bunch of other stuff. But once again, uh, they started to get into a dispute with their management. Once again, Crestwood uh, was not paying them what they felt that they were owed. And they wind up taking Crestwood to court over their late payments in 1955. They sue Crestwood for $130,000 worth of back pay and demand that the company... Uh, give them an audit of their books. They have a you know outside uh, accountant come in and take a look at their books. Crestwood winds up settling. They pay a little less. Crestwood pays less than one hundred and thirty thousand, but you know kind of like avoids the case entirely. And Kirby and Simon quit. At that point, Kirby and Simon are themselves. They're they're still friends, but they're kind of their working relationship has kind of come to an end at this point. Now they've been together for fifteen years, and uh, Simon. Doesn't really want to do comic books anymore. He'd like to get into kind of like fine art and advertising and, you know, like do something that makes more money. And Kirby is quite content to stay in comics. So he goes back to full time freelancing. Uh, He works for uh, National, uh, goes back to working for National again. And he even does some work for Stanley over at Atlas. He actually drew some of the early uh, Yellow Claw titles. Atlas goes out of business in 1957, and I promise we'll get into way more detail about like the existence and the troubles of Atlas Comics when we get around to doing the Marvel history. But basically, Atlas becomes not a viable place for Kirby to get any work, and so he goes kind of full-time working for, uh, for DC. At DC, he in 1957, he creates the Challenges of the Unknown, uh, which is kind of like a warm-up title for eventually doing the Fantastic Four, right? Like they don't, the challengers don't have any powers, but they are all super scientist explorers and, uh, you know, and, and heroes and that kind of thing. They're not really a superhero title. They're more of a sci-fi title, but they've got kind of superheroic trappings. And he also winds up taking on the Green Arrow title, which was still being run at that time uh, uh, for that. A Green Arrow, he's not interested. The Green Arrow to that point had been, you know, around for, more than 15 years and had basically just been a batman ripoff he was like all of the gadgets and stuff that batman had his utility belt and everything uh were just replaced with trick arrows and then he also drove like an arrow car and lived in an arrow cave and he had a teen sidekick and all the other things he was basically just a ripoff of batman and jack kirby wasn't interested in that uh he instead decided to make Green Arrow into much more of a sci-fi character. He fought aliens, and he had really cool, interesting gadgets that were, you know, like much bigger and splashier. And uh, he kind of, you know, turned Green Arrow into a very different sort of character. The problem was he was working for the editor he was working for at DC uh, was Mort Weisinger, who was the guy who created Green Arrow uh, originally back in 1942. And Mort, shall we say, did not care for what Jack was doing with, uh, with Green Arrow. And the two of them spent a lot of time fighting uh, about the content of what the strip was going to be. Meanwhile, DC got a deal to do a newspaper strip, as they periodically did, to produce a newspaper strip uh, that was going to be syndicated in a bunch of newspapers. And it was called Sky Masters of the Space Force. And it was going to be kind of an astronaut adventure type series. It was about the race to space. It was inspired by Sputnik. And it was going to be set in the near future with like American heroic patriotic astronauts and their first adventures out in space and that sort of thing. Uh, And it was going to be written by the Wood Brothers, uh, Dick and uh, um, I've forgotten Dick's brother's name, whatever, Dick and Dave or something. Uh, And then Jack Kirby would do the art and it would be edited by Jack Schiff who was one of the other DC editors. Jack did his own negotiation with the syndicates and basically negotiated himself a very healthy royalty of the payments that were going to the creators for doing this. Like his percentage basically came out of the Wood brothers and Kirby's paychecks. Uh, And shall we say it was a, Pretty sizable chunk, and Kirby was immediately kind of like not happy with that, and they got into a, a, a dispute uh, about the exact terms of this royalty, right? Like whether it was out of monthly, out of net or gross. Who was paying for the production for this? Who actually was paying for the you know uh, the, the the ink and the photostats of the pages and everything for this? Like who was who was doing this and who was responsible for what payments? Quickly became a whole bunch of disputes between Schiff and Kirby. And so the dispute kind of goes on. It keeps, like, dragging in other characters. Schiff basically fires Kirby from the Challengers while this dispute is going on, saying that the whole time they're having plotting sessions about the Challengers, Uh, the discussions were winding up creating plot points that would turn up in Skymasters. So when he, they were working on Challengers, his argument was that Kirby was actually getting a bunch of stuff for Skymasters done out of the Challengers work and therefore DC he, he was not doing his job for DC. He was kind of like doubling up on both of these. So Kirby in this case was not the one to sue. In this case it was Jack Schiff who uh, sued Jack Kirby took him to court and won. And Kirby was so outraged by this that he quit working for he'd already been fired from challengers he quit working on green arrow he quit working on skymasters quit working for dc entirely and with really very few p- kind of like other places left to go wound up going back to atlas again which was the one place that he could always you know kind of like find work so here he is now he's already he's he's turned 40 He's, you know, his his career has, uh, you know, had multiple kind of like high points. He's well-regarded, but here he is again, still kind of like scrabbling in the freelance uh, world. He's He can't seem to keep a job for more than a couple of years without getting fired or without getting into a dispute. His situation is kind of rough. And now he's back working for Stan Lee, who he really doesn't care for, right? Um, but he does the job. He does a bunch of sci-fi stuff and a bunch of uh, monsters. Joe Simon actually comes back briefly uh, and hires Kirby to do a little bit of freelance work for uh, for, for Archie Comics. Um, but that doesn't last, and Simon doesn't stick around. That only is a few months. But uh, during that time, Jack Kirby creates uh, Private Strong for, for Archie. And in 1961, uh, Stan uh kind of comes to jack kirby and says we've been told by martin goodman our boss who is still around there for us that we need to create a superhero team because the justice league is selling really well and he thinks that we need to you know uh, duplicate that we need to create a superhero team so uh let's you know sit down and create one together and put it out and see if we can make this work and what they create is of course the fantastic four there's an awful lot of dispute between Kirby and Lee after the fact about who in fact actually created what. Uh, Jack is a you know Jack's version of the story basically gives Lee very little credit and says that all he was doing was scripting after the fact that he didn't do any of the plotting, that it was all Kirby's plotting, and that in fact, a lot of Stan's dialogue that he wrote came from notes that Kirby would put on the back of the artwork saying what should be said in this panel. And so it's Kirby's, you know, view of this basically that like the Fantastic Four is 80 or 90% his, not a 50-50 split, which is kind of like the story that Lee tells uh, about how they created them. In fact, Lee, uh, you know, uh, has extensively uh, gone on in the press, uh, you know, about uh, his, his contribution and generally kind of, you know, like portrays. The other early artists as being you know like important, but Jack is the most important of them, to the point where he's willing to give Jack fifty percent of the credit, right? And Kirby's like, "That's ridiculous. That's you know, uh, we were doing way more than fifty percent of the work." Uh, but that begins you know the Marvel Age, right? Like Fantastic Four is of course a smash hit, and everything that uh, Lee and Kirby kind of like put their hands to uh, over the next few years basically turns to gold right like uh, between them they create the hulk they create thor uh which will go on to be the number two seller uh, of marvel for a while they create iron man steve ditko comes to work uh with with them and lee and ditko between them create spider-man and dr strange uh kirby co-creates the the avengers puts that team together so like you know they're just churning out an enormous amount of tremendously successful stuff in fact, uh, Kirby co-creates Spider-Man. Uh, in fact, he's the first uh, his, his art uh, version of it is the first drawn version of Spider-Man is by Kirby and Stan rejects it and gives it to Steve Ditko to redraw because Jack made him look too cool. Right, like the whole idea was, you know, like he wanted this guy to be kind of like a nebbishy, ordinary guy to be a little skinny and a little young and everything. And Kirby's version of him just had too many muscles and was too, you know, like obviously uh, a, a heroic-looking hero. And he very much wanted Ditko's look, but it's really the the first drawing, the design of the character came from a Jack Kirby uh, a Jack Kirby drawing. Regardless, uh, Kirby's style of drawing becomes the official house style of Marvel at this point. And everybody's after that is told to draw like Kirby, right? Like to look at Kirby's art and do it that way. That becomes the the standard. The only artists who were basically allowed to not be Kirby ripoffs uh, in those first five or six years were basically Steve Ditko and to a lesser extent Gene Colin. Uh, Both of whom themselves were very kind of like very strong stylistically, had their own uh, takes and basically would not have been able to draw like Kirby, even if they'd wanted to. Uh, But that kind of, you know, runs through the 60s anyway. uh, So that's, you know, like most of the 1960s are spent. Jack is just, you know, turning out work. Jack is on staff. Uh, He's making at this point about 35 grand a year. Once again, in modern money, that's about a quarter of a million dollars salary. So he's doing all right financially. Um, But once again, he's seeing that an enormous amount of money is being made for the company, for his creations. And his percentage of that is not that high, right? In 1968, Joe Simon kind of comes back out of retirement and files a copyright renewal for Captain America, Right? Because the law at that point said that the copyrights had to be renewed after 28 years, and Captain America had been created in 1940, brought back by Marvel in the '60s, uh, but in 1968, that was a full 28 years. And so he files a copyright renewal saying that he's the creator, he and Jack Kirby are the creators of this character. They own they should get the rights to him. Um, and he asks Kirby to go along with him. On this to support you know his suit to also sign in on his suit kirby is in the middle of a salary negotiation with martin goodman at the time to have his uh, contract renewed and as part of his salary negotiation in order to get more money per year out of martin goodman he agrees he signs a contract that basically says he signs over any right that that he had to captain america Right, he's not going to join Simon in this trial in this court case about like who owns Captain America, uh, and he's basically bought out of doing so by Martin Goodman paying him more cash. This is a decision he will go on to greatly regret. Uh, not only does it piss off Joe that he doesn't, you know, they can't kind of like present a united front to the court about this, but obviously, uh, you know, he thinks. He is getting something from Marvel in doing so, uh, and is being a good, you know, kind of like corporate uh, uh, person there. And that the company will take care of him later for this. Apparently, he gets a lot of promises from Goodman about how he'll be taken care of, and none of them actually happen. Right? He he clearly gets right. taken in this deal. So he keeps fighting. With Goodman, he keeps fighting with Stan Lee. He's really unhappy that Lee gets all the publicity uh, that he does because Lee is really good at promoting himself as the public face of uh, you know, of Marvel, basically. Uh, he doesn't like that he doesn't have creative control over most of his titles. He's not allowed to write any of his own scripts. The only time Lee ever lets him be the scripter on a title is on the Inhumans run in Amazing Adventures, and he really enjoys that, uh, and he keeps you know, pushing at Lee to let him do more scripting and Lee just won't let him do it. Uh and
0: do what do you think the reason of that, that was? Like did, was have they ever said like why? Or has anyone ever said like why? Uh because Kirby writes a lot for DC, but he doesn't really
1: write all the for well Kirby argues that he was doing most of the writing for it right but like because right. lee was sticking okay. his nose in there or whatever and doing the final uh you know dialogue and the stuff in the page therefore he was getting you know 50% of the credit for doing a much smaller percentage of the work and so gotcha. you know if lee let him write for himself well then where would lee be you know be able to like get his uh his his check for writing right
0: so, sense.
1: uh, you know, he wanted to still be getting the credit for, I mean, once again, that's Kirby's version of it. Right. But still, right. um, so in 1970, now two years later, it's time for him to re- redo his contract again, right? Like he did this contract for more money in 68 in 1970, two years later, time to negotiate the contract again. And this time Martin Goodman includes in the contract, a bunch of prohibitions against him or anybody else, but somehow Kirby's is the only, you know, like contract that actually like explicitly says this saying, you can't sue Marvel for anything as part of like signing this contract, right? Like you agree that you're not going to dispute this or that, or pretty much anything else that might come up. It's a completely ridiculous contract. And Kirby takes a look at it and says, no, I'm I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm not going to sign this contract and I'm out of here. Uh, And so he, at this point, is moving to California uh, to, you know, get out of New York with his family. Um, And while he does that, he quits Marvel and moves back over to D.C. At D.C., he signs a three-year exclusive contract. And that contract has two option years to, like, be renewed. If they both are happy with it, basically, they can just redo it for another year afterwards. Uh, And so he gets a gig basically and at DC you know they make a big splash of him coming over and say okay part of your contract is you're going to do four titles for us and uh Kirby's like well I've got ideas for three of them and then why don't you give me a fourth one of you know whatever you guys have and they say, well you know who do you want what titles do you want? And he says I don't want the the it, it was said at the time that Kirby supposedly said to DC give me your worst selling title and I'll make it your best-selling title right? That's not actually how it came out, right? What Kirby actually said to DC was, give me a title that doesn't have a regular team on it because I don't want to take anybody else's job, right? That's, that, bo- that would have bothered him to have done that. So he says, give me something that, like, you know, that, that you have a hard time keeping people on and I'll do that. And then I'll do my other three titles that I want to do. And so what they gave him was Jimmy Olsen, was Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen which was a title that you know was way down at kind of like the bottom of the list and they had a very hard time keeping anybody working on it cuz it really wasn't that interesting a title, right? So Kirby right. does Jimmy Olsen, but then he creates three more titles of his own and those three titles are Forever People, Mr. Miracle, and the New Gods. Uh, and they're amazing, right? I mean they're, you know, this is Kirby at the height of his artistic powers. He is finally given freedom to script his stuff. It's genius, it's brilliant, and it's probably several years ahead of its time because the fans don't really quite get it. It's very different from anything else that DC has been publishing to this point. It's different from every other superhero title on the stands. There's a lot of like high concept. Stuff in it. There's a lot of you know, like mythology, a lot of ancient astronauts, kind of you know, Eric Von Daniken uh, stuff in 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 it. It's very kind of highfalutin and it's weird, and it's very difficult. It's like the sales are not good uh, to to start out with, but. A lot more ahead of his time. He was, a, he was definitely ahead of his time, uh, as we kind of yeah. like establish later with the success of all of those characters after him, right? Like other people doing them have made a lot more money off those characters than he did. While he's doing these titles, though, I, you know, they, they give him uh, two or three years to, you know, like get them up and running. In Mr. Miracle, he kind of like gets his revenge on Stan Lee and Roy Thomas, who was Lee's assistant editor at Marvel at the time. Uh, He creates a character in Mr. Miracle called Funky Flashman. And Funky Flashman is a business agent who basically tries to become uh, Mr. Miracle's agent and get him jobs and that sort of thing. And like attach himself like a parasite basically to Mr. Miracle. Uh, And he is very clearly Stan Lee. He looks like him. He talks like him. It's very obvious that that's what he's doing. Uh, And then Funky Flashman has a sidekick uh, called House Roy uh which is who is Roy Thomas and it's just it's awful uh but it's really funny him getting his revenge. Uh so while he's there he does Commandy, he does Omac, he does Demon, they keep you know trying other titles for him. He's fighting with the editors. Uh they keep forcing him to include characters he doesn't like and stuff. Since he's physically in California like the New York based office uh Keep doing revisions on his work that he doesn't get to see before it hits print. Uh, Robert Kaniger, who was one of the editors at DC, had kind of you know he and uh, Kirby really didn't like each other and didn't like each other's art style. And Kaniger spent a lot of time bad mouthing Kirby and his work in the in the in the office, uh, and just kind of like made his life difficult. So once his five years of his contract are up, he goes back to Marvel again. Uh, and, you know, Marvel makes a big splash of him coming back. He does runs on Captain America, and Black Panther. He creates Machine Man. He creates the Eternals. He's still mad, right? He's still not happy about being at Marvel, but he's running out of places to work, right? right. Uh, and eventually in 1978, 79, he's going to get the hell out of comics entirely. He's, he's pretty much done with this, you know, with this business. He goes to work uh, out of comics at Hanna-Barbera and starts writing cartoons and and designing Mm -hmm. cartoons. And among the things he creates there while he's there, of course, or co-creates is Thundar, the Barbarian. Um, He does a bunch of other work. In fact, he winds up working with Stan Lee again because one of the titles that he works for at at Hanna Barbera is the new Adventures of the Fantastic Four, the animated uh, Fantastic Four series. He also, at this point, does the Lord of Light uh, design work for a movie uh, that's going to be based on, On the Lord of Light novels, on the Zelazny novels, uh, which that movie never actually happens, but the CIA use it uh, as part of like their Canadian caper efforts to get embassy workers out of Tehran. If you've seen the movie Argo, uh, the movie that they're fake making is based on the production designs that Jack Kirby himself had done. I did not know that. That's very cool. So now we've got one more dispute with Marvel that we kind of like actually have to hit here, Uh, and uh, so Marvel has all of the original art that was sent to them in the 60s and 70s as they were creating stuff for it, they physically have it, right? Like this, everything that was kind of like photostatted and put it into a comic. Um, And they, you know, they physically kept them in a warehouse uh, in Manhattan. And that art, they didn't really kind of like fully understand. There wasn't really a collector's market that could like establish what the value of this art would have been for resale, but they knew there was an interest. They knew there was collectors, and in fact, they wound up uh, giving. Um, they would like when Marvel's clients would come into the office, they would give them some art, right? Like here, hang this on your wall or something, right? They literally just hand them, you know, like a, like pages of of original art and just walk out with them, right? Um, other pieces they know were stolen. Uh, you know, like out of their warehouse because they didn't put any security on this or anything. They would take them to conventions. Individual people working for Marvel and DC would go to those very earliest comic conventions in the 70s, and they would sell original art at the conventions for 10 bucks a page, 15 bucks a page, right? And the original, the the artist in that case, never got those back, right? Like they didn't get any of that money. Um, And Marvel was sold, bought and sold, several times over this, this section of time here, right? Once again, we'll do the Marvel history, but Marvel was bought and sold several times. And each time, they would put a cash value on the art that they were hanging onto in that warehouse. And they would change right. what that cash value was depending on whether it was a good idea for them to have a lot of money here or a good idea for them to have like no money here, right? Like They would change that number up and down each time they got bought or sold. Right to like make their books look better, whatever they needed to do. But because mm-hmm. they put a cash value on it at all, uh, and like you know listed it as an asset, that meant that if they ever gave that art back, they'd have to pay sales tax on that. Even if they were giving it back for free, that's still like a gift. That's still a, a transaction that involved value, and therefore right. Marvel would have to pay sales tax on that transaction. So they just never gave anybody anybody's any art back, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The Copyright Act of 1978 uh, said that uh, they needed to, it, it basically kind of like changed the laws about who would own that kind of art, right? Like who would own the original art of that sort of thing. And publishers suddenly kind of had to scramble to make sure their paperwork was in order. And so they needed... To get their artists, they, they, they decided they, they wanted to get the art back to the artists because the artists were kind of like clamoring for it, right? They, they appreciated that it was worth money. The artists could take their original art to a convention and sell it or sell it to collectors. So they were really kind of like pushing Marvel to return this. And Marvel said, okay, uh, you know, you can do that as long as you uh, sign these releases that affirm that we own this stuff. This is the we own the copyright, we own the characters, and that the art we're just giving to you, like out of kindness, basically, right? Sure. So, uh, Kirby was kind of like one of the biggest ones pushing for this, right? Like, he's one mm-hmm. of the ones kind of like fighting over the rights to get his art back, and they kept insisting for him to get any of this stuff back, he would need to sign a bunch of like very kind of like onerous documents, basically saying, uh, You know, that like they owned everything that he had done for them. And furthermore, he wouldn't be allowed to resell it because all they were doing were basically giving him the right to keep his stuff in storage, right? Like he could donate it to a museum temporarily, but like Marvel always had the right to come get it back at any time. And Kirby refused to sign it. And this just kept going back and forth over years and years. Um, And, uh, during this stretch, right, like they, they finally send him a, a contract in which he says, uh, you'll, We'll give you back 88 pages of your art, right? He's clearly got 10,000 pages or so right. in, in this warehouse, you know, like according to their documents, right? right. That could, yeah, right. A, less than a percent, you know, if he signed the agreement, but they reserve the right to reclaim the art if Kirby ever vi- violated the deal and he couldn't resell it. Uh, they could borrow it back from him anytime they wanted to. And Kirby, finally having had enough of this, he and his wife went to the comics journal and told them what Marvel was doing, gave them, gave them kind of like the full story about this. And the comics journal printed everything, printed the entire run of documents in 1985, and a zillion other artists and creators basically came out in huge support of Kirby, saying that Marvel was like completely mistreating this guy. Uh, Will Eisner, Neil Adams, Frank Miller. Gary Trudeau, the guy who does Doonesbury, right? Like, all of these people came out in like massive support of Kirby. Kirby himself was publicly, you know, like talking to them and basically called them thugs and said they were, you know, like holding his creations arbitrarily and just treating him terribly. Uh, And so Marvel finally, after two years of taking just an incredible public beating, eventually returned about 2,000 pages of his art to him. Of that original, what they estimate should have been ten to twelve thousand,
0: and what do you want to sell that art? And they don't; they
1: can't answer for what happened to the rest of it. They say that's all they've got, right Mm -hmm. now. Where the rest of that went is a serious matter of contention, right, and remains that to this day. Uh, They know, for example, that like artists were staffers were taking it out of their warehouse to cons and selling it they know that the guy who ran their fan club the Marvel Mania fan club somehow acquired a bunch of their art telling Marvel that he was going to make posters of it but instead sold a bunch of it to comic shops and paid his employees in like free art basically like he never you know guy named uh, Don Wallace basically and we can when we do the Marvel history we'll do a lot about him because he was one of the great crooks of Marvel history um and as they said, a lot of people just kind of like walked out of their office with it. I mean, as uh, as Roz Kirby points out, the room at the Marvel offices that they kept that in was literally right next to the elevator. There was nothing stopping anybody from just like walking in, taking what they wanted and uh, and walking out. So uh, Kirby is, you know, he's fighting with, he's, he's working uh, mostly in animation. Uh, he did a few more comics in the 80s. He did a deal with Pacific Comics to do a, a comic called Captain Victory uh which was one of the very first creator-owned titles uh that was ever published. It was a third party publisher still, but like, you know, Kirby owned the rights to that character. Uh DC decided to do him a solid at one point for this. In 1984, Jeanette Kahn, who is the president of uh of DC at the time, and Paul Levitz, who was the editor in chief, reached out to him and said, Look, we've got a deal with um with with uh uh, Kenner, right? We're doing a we're doing a, a, a toy line to go with the Super Friends uh, superpowers TV series, and that t- that series uses a bunch of his characters. It uses the Fourth World characters, like Darkseid is the main bad guy, and all this other stuff for it. And so we want to hire you to redo a bunch of your original designs of these characters, and that way you will get royalties uh, from the current. Contract that you never got for those characters originally. Right. All you have to do is just kind of like recreate them for us, and we'll pay you today like you just made them, even if, even though they're all at this point, you know, 16 years old. And so, lead uh, Kirby does that deal, right. And, uh, you know, also does some uh, com- more comics for them, did some Super Friends comics for them, and got paid a hundred times more than he had ever made. For creating those characters in the first place. And DC didn't have to do that, right? That was literally Khan and Levitt's kind of like reaching out to, you know, say, we owe you, right? We know you've been mistreated uh, during all of this time, but at the, you know, here's a chance at least to make some of that back. So uh, Kirby, you know, keeps uh, largely is retired by the late 80s, early 90s, still fighting with Marvel about his art. and uh, does uh, a new creator online with Tops in 92, 93, and then he dies at the age of 77 in 1994. Marvel has taken a tremendous amount of you know like public abuse over this uh, over the last you know decade over their fighting with him, and they finally agree to give his wife, to give his widow Roz, a pension uh, starting in 1994 after Jack has already died. And Roz famously comes out in an interview and says, Well, you know, she intends to live long enough to have that pension cover everything Marvel actually owed Jack, right? If she has to live to be 150, uh, she'll make sure that Marvel just keeps paying through the nose for it. Unfortunately, uh, she was, you know, wrong, and she died in 1998 after only collecting four years of that pension. Uh, Kirby's family sued Marvel and DC and Sony. I'm not DC, Marvel, Disney, Sony, and Fox about uh, termination of the copyrights of all of his characters once the movies had become a big deal, right? And Marvel files a countersuit against them in 2011. Uh, that fight uh, goes uh, all the way up to uh, like top, levels, top state level. Marvel wins the initial case. Kirby's family appeals in 2013. In 2014, Kirby's family sends an appeal to the Supreme Court to review, but before they can do that, before the Supreme Court actually uh, can review it, Marvel paid off the family. We don't know the amount, but apparently the Kirby family made a pile of cash in this deal that remains a secret, uh, and they withdrew their, their petition. Unfortunately, Jack and Roz are both dead, but at least their kids and their grandkids apparently have made a bunch of money from Marvel uh, but we do not know the total of that. All rights to the Marvel characters that he created remain with Marvel today, and they're pretty much undisputed. And let's talk about right. what that actually means, right? If you take all of the movies that have been made featuring Jack Kirby-created characters by Marvel, how much money do you think those have earned? Up to uh, an Ed game, right? Like uh, Use that as a cutoff point. Billions. 17 billion dollars. Wow. It's insane. Of which the Kirby family got basically none of. Right. Right. I mean that's the, you know,
0: hopefully the payoff was at least a few mil- a few million. We
1: hope, right? I we yeah. we don't know. It was enough for them to say we are willing to, you know, stop appealing basically. So. Yeah.
0: And- and marvel basically paid the i'm assuming paid them off because they didn't want the bad press in the supreme court of the right can court. you
1: imagine the you know like the publicity that that case would have gotten of you know right, like lawyers be, explaining to ruth bader ginsburg like who you know captain america was
0: oh man that would have been a, a fun case to watch
1: right absolutely Although, and it would have gotten massive unnecessary press for marvel right it would have been a terrible look yeah. so
0: probably best that they got they took that payoff though because i based on what we've uh covered in in past uh, comic book lawsuits i would not feel like it was in their best like that they were going to win right um but well a pseudo happy ending i guess there for a overall kind of you know sad story of him getting screwed over repeatedly absolutely
1: and like i said we'll we'll do more of these that like more talk about his art we just kind of wanted to yeah. establish this was his career this is the the fight he kept having for 70 years right so
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I don't does he doesn't win a single case throughout all this. He day. really doesn't, no. No, man, that's a shame. Well, thank you all for joining us. I've been Steve. This Shasker. is Darren Watts. Thanks for
1: coming. Bye bye.